The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Judith Tannen from the New Books Network. Today, I am thrilled to speak with Johanna Dobrich, author of Working with Survivor Siblings in Psychoanalysis, Ability and Disability in Clinical Process. Johanna is the recipient of the 2023 Sandor Ferenczi Award. The award is given for the best published work in the realm of psychoanalysis, related to trauma and dissociation in adults and or children. Survivor Siblings in Psychoanalysis is the first book to address the topic of relational trauma within the families of a child with severe disabilities. Working with survivor siblings in psychoanalysis, ability and disability in clinical process explores a previously neglected area in the field of psychoanalysis, addressing under-theorized concepts on siblings, disabilities, and psychic survivorship, and broadening our conceptualization of the enduring effects of lateral relationships on human development. What happens to a person's sense of self, both personally and professionally, when they grow up alongside a severely disabled sibling? Through a series of qualitative interviews held between the author and a sample of psychoanalysis, this book examines both the unconscious experience and the interpersonal field of survivor siblings. Through a trauma-informed contemporary psychoanalytical lens, Dobrik combines data analysis, theory building, memoir, and clinical storytelling to explore and explicate the impact of lateral survivorship on the clinical moment, making room for a contemporary and nuanced appreciation of siblings in psychoanalysis. Working with survivor siblings in psychoanalysis, ability and disability in clinical process will be of immense interest and value to psychoanalysts and other mental health professionals and for all therapists who work with and treat patients that are themselves survivor siblings. Uniquely integrating both academic and memoir writing, this book will also engage those building theory around the implications of the analyst's subjectivity on clinical processes. Johanna Dobrich is a licensed clinical social worker and psychoanalyst with a private practice in New York City that specializes in the treatment of dissociative disorders, among other conditions. Johanna has a master's degree in political science from Rutgers University and an MSW from New York University. 
Johanna teaches courses in relational psychoanalysis and its intersection with traumatology and supervises postgraduate psychoanalytic candidates in training at the Institute for Contemporary Psychotherapy and at the Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy Study Center. Johanna enjoys writing, supervising, engaging, and coming together with those who share an interest in understanding the complexities, joys, and pains of human connection and expression. Johanna, welcome to the podcast. I found your book compelling for a variety of reasons. I thought we could start by having you share your intimate writing style with our listeners. Could you read a few pages from the prologue, which also explain the motivation behind the book? Absolutely. And before I read, I just want to thank you, Judith, for giving me the opportunity to share my work with you today. So it's a mutual admiration society, Johanna. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm going to drop you in because actually the best way to talk about this topic is to get you affectively in scene. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the first three pages of the prologue to do that. Great. The room is mostly dark with drifts of light coming through the translucent panels on the bedroom shade meant to minimize its impact. The mattress below me finally firm enough to hold my weight and the hallucinatory infant that still resides in a sleep-induced fragment of my mind laying between my partner and me who, before the recent purchase of this mattress, was at constant risk of accidental suffocation, a swallowing of baby by bed. Our actual son is asleep in his crib in the room next door. I drift off to sleep. I seem to take for granted now that I can drift off to sleep without much trouble. Sometimes it's just an hour later. Other times it's more than four, or most cumbersome of all. Perhaps it's only 20 minutes after my falling asleep that my young son's cries pierce my dreaming self and I am awake. The hallucinatory infant's cries used to wake me up too, but thankfully approaching my son's second birthday, it's just his actual cries that pull me to consciousness. I feel my body tense up to meet a string of words more prayer than poem heard inside my head as, no, 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 make it stop, as if I can will intrusion away by maintaining a strong front. I immediately recognize the prayer as familiar echoing in my mindscape from the very beginnings of my consciousness. I glance at the alarm clock and quickly calculate how much time has passed from my being asleep to awake. As I'm doing the math, the no, no, no recedes into maternal recognition. I am mom, not baby. Mom will respond to a crying baby. Mom must respond to a crying baby. I can't allow for a world in which she doesn't. Mom checks the clock now to track the time and to make sure the intervention of going in and providing reassurance will not disrupt all the good growth babies managed with getting back to sleep on his own. I say to myself, if he cries more than five minutes, I will go to him. And then I assess the pattern of sounds and sighs he makes. Is it a continuous wail? If so, I'm sitting up in bed one foot already dangling off the side of the too firm but yet safe mattress, prepared to overthrow this rational regime of fostering self-soothing skills and run into the room to pick up, hold, and contain his anguish and my own. If it's on off again crying at a low pitch, 
and interspersed with some other sounds, I hear it as speech. Maybe he's relaying his dream to himself. Maybe he wants an audience of mom to share it with. I don't need to sit up, as historically I know this usually trails off, leading him back to the path of sleep. But I begin to feel my own anxiety and wish for him to refine sleep soon so that I can do the same. If the crying dissipates and it grows quiet again, my feet will not have touched the floor below, but my mind will be on like the lights in a theater house, illuminating everything on the stage below. And as he presumably finds sleep, and as my partner resumes sleep with an enviable ease, my thoughts will drift to my girlhood bed and back to that voice in my head saying, no, no, no. I feel particularly tortured by the sequence of what is just an ordinary experience of parenting babies. It's not his need for me itself, whether it's real, imagined, or projected in the moments that's truly troubling. But awakening to the sound of my son's cries sets off an automatic bodily memory of hearing my severely disabled brother's cries overnight in girlhood. The uncertainty of when it will happen, if it will happen, how many times it will happen, and how bad it will be for both of us, all evoke the terror of my own first six years of life in which my older quadriplegic brother with spastic cerebral palsy would frequently have severe life-threatening seizures over the course of the night. This primitive part of me screams out in my head, make it stop in the present tense, even if other parts of me know that now is not then. This part cannot distinguish then from now, no matter how much time passes. The time of day most people come to associate ultimately with safety and restoration, even though separation plays a part in bedtime, was for me instead infused with unpredictable dread. The sounds coming from my brother's room, the sight of his clenched, shaking body, flesh turning purple and red, blood dripping down from lips caught by the teeth in the terror of the moment, his eyes wide open and dilated, and the attendant uncertainty about whether it would end with or without medical intervention, whether we'd be speeding in a screaming ambulance to the ER or expected to drift back to sleep, scanning my mother's face for the truth of what might come next and finding a drill sergeant barking commands. Joey, go get me some water. Help me move him here. And later, go get me the Depocaine in her place. Or worse, sometimes she'd be drained of all feeling and eerily calm in the face of possible death. No drill sergeant, no worry. Just the presence of a buzzing pitch, like the sounds the cicadas made in the Jersey summer nights. I do not know how many times this event happened. More than three times, but not once a week or anything like that. My son wakes and cries overnight far more often, I'm sure, than my brother had life-threatening seizures when I was a child. But the frequency and the unconscious association have very little to do with one another. And so it goes that after my son in present time falls back asleep, I lay awake remembering the feel of my childhood carpet, a thick, soft, lush purple rug beneath my feet as I leapt from my room to my brother's the feel of the smooth, glossy wooden surface of the bedpost in my parents' room, where I'd hold on as I watched my mom tend to my brother in his beleaguered and frightening state, ready to meet her coming demands. 
I'll catch glimpses of the too dark backyard, which could be seen from the kitchen window where I'd be fetching the water from the sink for my brother. I'll feel the pull of outside, how the darkness in those moments both offered me an escape and a terror that it could swallow me whole, that I could disappear into it and no one would know I was gone because the crisis with my brother was occupying everyone's attention. Full disclosure, I dissociated during part of that reading. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. And make it stop. Make it stop and an escape. And a part of the reason I wanted you to read this is because I think it explains why you wrote this book, but also because I wanted the listeners and the future readers to hear your beautiful writing style. So Judith, I just want to say that dissociating while hearing it, if we want to formulate that, it's actually uh, Karen Hoppenweiser calls that dissociative attunement because you're not necessarily hearing the content, but you're aligning with the experience. And this, this passage is an experience of my own dissociation. So the reader is invited into that. So true. So yeah. talk to me more because all I kept thinking about was trauma and your apt phase, unexperienced experience, which, you know, I know that's been referred to in the literature. I know Danelle Stern has brought up this concept, but could you talk to me more about that? Because you seemingly were describing that in sure. those pages. Yeah, I mean, I think I want to say at the outset that any idea we all have comes from other people's ideas, but we make them our own based on our own wisdom and our own experience. And so, you know, unexperienced experience is my way of describing dissociation that occurs during developmental trauma. And what I was trying to do was describe less of um, splitting and that concept of, of what the mind does and more of what doesn't happen. I was trying to grasp what doesn't happen instead of what happens instead. So unexperienced experience is um, captures that complexity of the way something scary, something overwhelming, and something traumatic is both vivid and absent simultaneously. So it's vivid, it's stored in some place, and in this instance, it's stored in this prayer that I hear in my head, no, 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 make it stop. But it's, it's, and it's very vivid, right? But it was also absent. Like when I became a parent, I was imagining the normal things people experience are, that are going to be difficult. Like how will I nurse or how will I go back to work or, you know, in no way was I consciously prepared for what the sound of an infant's cry would evoke in me, right? And that is because these early unexperienced experiences are never fully inhabited. It's like on a continuum, right? So this concept, I'm trying to capture that for any trauma survivor, but in this case, survivor siblings, which is people who have traumatic experiences during development related to medical complexity before they've reached maturation, before their mind can process it, right? Um, 
I wanted to capture that that the way in which the experience is too present and absent simultaneously. And that is why I thought of it as unexperienced experience. Of course. And and I have so many questions just from what you explored, but I know we ha have limited time. So I'm going to ask a two-pronged question. One is, I know your book is based on interviews or sessions with other survivors and i'm wondering their reaction and and their understanding of what you just explained about unexperienced experience and thing number two is you touched on the lateral relationship right. which i think we really need to talk about right okay i'm happy to to, to take both questions thank you I I do, I do want to say that I don't think I'm inventing the wheel, but I feel like I'm finding a thread that got lost mm. when I focus on unexperienced experience. And I want to think about Forenzi and I want to think about his um, wisdom and understanding what a child's mind does with an experience that's overwhelming. And I want to think about Freud, actually, even pre-Edipal Freud. I want to think about Freud working with um, Genet and Charcot and hypnosis and dual consciousness, right? That, that there's a long tradition of, of people storing and keeping overwhelming experience in a different state of consciousness. So it's not gone, but it's also not there so that the person can go on adapting and living, right? So... Okay, I just wanna situate that there. So I did not really approach the interviews from that perspective initially. Mm. What happened was, um, here's two stories to back this up. Years ago, I was in a supervision group and a colleague was describing her counter-transference to a, a patient. And there was something in her description of what it brought up for her, a sense of, impotence and invisibility and defeatedness that just really clicked. And later I discovered that she had a sister with cerebral palsy. And I said, wait a second. I mean, I'm sure plenty of us as analysts can relate to impotence and defeatedness and difficulty. It's part of the job, but there was more to it. There was there was a resonance that was so deep and profound. I thought this is an experience that hasn't been thought about enough. How, what was endured in the sibling and lateral relation, not only informs a, an ex one clinical example, but even the choice to become a psychoanalyst. So we had lunch after that. And I jokingly said, let's write a book. And she said, I don't think so, but you should. And then we both promptly dissociated that conversation, or at least I did. <laughs> and years later, I ran into her and she said, how's the book coming? And I said, what book? Years later, I had my son and I had that experience of sleep training him in toddlerhood. And I wrote this as a diary entry. I mean, this book begins as a diary entry about one horrible night where I was woken up and what came up. And I remembered this friend and I remembered that residence. And I said, wow, you know, it may be time. It may be time to work on inhabiting this experience for me. And so before I knew it, this whole project got underway from that sequence of events. It took forever, it took my whole life. And it also wasn't an instant the way these things happen. And I, I put out a query on a bunch of um, 
psychoanalytic listservs, that I was interested in speaking to other siblings who had grown up alongside a medically complex um, sibling. And I want to also just pause really quickly to say that in no way do I think a disabled person causes trauma. That That is not what I'm at all trying to say. Um, I, I, I think having profound respect for neurodivergence and is a part is a basic part of being human. Um, however, the cases that I was examining were not cases of just sort of um, mild differences in sensory processing, but extreme cases of medically complex situations, often involving life or death and or institutionalization, and in many cases, premature death. So I, I want to say at the outset, it's not the disability that is traumatizing, but the environment of being exposed to severe, chronic, unpredictable loss, and the way the family responds to that, because there is not adequate time ever to prepare for this kind of thing. So it's, it's the environment that can be traumatizing, not the identity of the disabled sibling. And that is so important to me. So I do want to say that. Of course. So I put the query out and I ended up hearing back from maybe 20 or so people. And I said, listen, I'd like to sit down and do a semi-structured interview if you're willing. And I wrote out a series of questions and I ended up interviewing more than 15, but only 15 folks became part of the data analysis, which I don't need to go into now. But um, some of the interviews were online, some were in person, even though they were done pre-COVID. Um, but some of them, people lived in other countries. So, you know, it was pre-COVID Zoom spectacularness. <laughs> um, and, and so what ended up happening was, and it, I mean, I guess in hindsight, it feels obvious, I should say, but at the time it didn't I didn't know this is what we were up to, but what the interviews acted as were portals for encountering unexperienced experience. However, certain conditions had to be satisfied. I could not approach the interview robotically. Self-disclosure that I'm interested in this topic because I count myself among you was really instrumental. In other words, I ended up inhabiting a sibling role in the transferential process. And so I think I, I use the metaphor in the book, like, I, I mean, I have no way of knowing I've never served in an actual war in a location, but I had the fantasy at some point that it must feel like what veterans feel like when they're talking to someone that hasn't gone to war versus when they are. The experiential conditions were safe enough to go there without shame and fear and judgment constricting the space. So Ooh, Johanna, I'm just so struck by the unexperienced experience was like some aspect of you that needed to come out and be experienced and have its voice heard. This whole process of you writing the book and it was there. Right, right. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and I didn't know, but I, and I hope it's so, and um, I've heard from some, but not all, but I, I do know that some of the folks I spoke with um, sent me messages later about how seen and heard and represented how much they hadn't known they needed to formulate this. 
know, had, had been a part of it. And that gets to your second question, which is the absence of the lateral, right? Correct. And it's a big one. I'm thinking maybe you could, rather than just dive in, actually, maybe big picture, a brief kind of history of based on Oedipal and the relationship to now lateral. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think... I think that socio-political forces constrained our imagination out of loyalty, which is what happens in hierarchies with power of in any field, in any place, at any time, right? And so while Freud's commitment to the Oedipus complex as the defining feature of family life was novel and brilliant for its time, a repercussion or a side effect is that it really displaced attention on mutual or peer or sibling dynamics. It eclipsed them. And the interpersonalists brought um, relationships of all stripes back front and center to our understanding of psychic development and health and identity. Um, but we had already lost a lot of time. Uh, our biases had already developed in such a way that there was an overemphasis on authority and parents or caregivers um, as in shaping us as individuals, you know. So it's not it's not a plot. It's just a happenstance, an outcome of what power does. It's discursive. It limits our imaginations, right? Um, and I think that. Freud's um, effort to develop uh, a unique line of thinking and, and, and the threat, the real threat he was under to do so, um, you know, to not be discredited for various reasons, um, did, did we lost predecessors that might have gotten us there sooner, Forenzi, for example, being one of them. You know, I don't, I don't think other people have necessarily thought of his legacy specifically as sibling-based, but, and his emphasis on um, using himself flexibly in the service of meeting his patients in trauma where they were and in hearing the, the sources of that trauma as beyond fantasy, like exogenous events that had actually occurred. I think, you know, that's a doorway into obviously my book and the contents of my book. Um, so, so. I think we're trying to catch up is my point. And I think relational psychoanalysis in particular, which doesn't make us choose between fantasy and reality and incorporates the object and the actual relationship, you know, the, the intrapsychic and the interpersonal um, without choosing sides allows us to examine, Hey, what's going on between siblings or what's not happening between siblings. What happens in communities where power is shared instead of um, held over, what gets developed. And this is a, a little bit of a sidebar, but in terms of more generally thinking about the lateral, I think if we really wanna understand creativity, we really need to consider what gets developed in lateral spaces. I think it's a huge source of creativity. Can you talk more about that? Well, I, you know, Lou Aaron has that a chapter in the book about moving past tolerance and into understanding when he's talking about the different psychoanalytic schools. I sort of think of them as siblings, you know, relational, ah, interpersonal, sure. contemporary Freudian. And it's like, well, if we're not competing for who's right, what do we get? 
what is beyond tolerance? Of right? course. How I think it's a fabulous question. Such a fabulous question. You are brilliant. <laughs> Seriously, it's such a power dynamic that we just assume. Yet there's a power dynamic that is a seesaw with siblings, but not with a disabled sibling, because you're never truly equal as equal as any sibling can be. Well, you're not in the same sphere of living. It's at least in the cases of siblings I have, I really want to mitigate against less severe chronic medical situations are different. But in this case, you know, my, my sibling, for example, has been in an institution since he was 18. That's a very different experience than the one I've had, you know. Um, but, but I want to also just say that um, I think that another way of understanding the absence of siblings is that attachment is a really organizing principle and paying our respects to our predecessors if we think about it from the lens of attachment, it's a way of staying attached, connected, right, to our to our origin, to our to our primary caregiver, to our original provider, and so you don't want to rebel, but you, I mean, okay, some people may want to rebel. I don't want to usually rebel, but I don't want to lose the tie. But I want to be able to think my own thoughts, right? And so that's another dilemma for how do we work with the lateral? How can we stay connected but do something different and new? Yes, but you know, we speak of rivalry, but there's less of an impact on the lateral relationship. But I'm also thinking, you know, this book deals with the disabled. But the truth is, this book applies to the typical sibling, the typical family, the typical trauma experience as well. Don't right. you think? Yeah, I mean, I think this book is really, it's, it's, it's like those images where depending on what you're looking depending on who's looking, you see a different thing in it, you know, an old woman, a young woman, the a baby. Yes. So you could see siblings, you could see trauma, you could see disability, you could see survivorship, you could see psychoanalytic theory, you know, um, it, it does touch on a lot of different areas. And I think that in, in part, that was because it was born of just these really rich, enlivening dialogues I had with other analysts. You know, the content of the book was structured it ended up being that each of the chapters pertained to one of the questions I asked. Now, no conversation was the same, but I asked the same things, you know, to each person. And so, so lots of areas got touched on. And so I think there's something in it for everyone. That's right. I wouldn't say this is a book for only siblings of disabled exactly. siblings. Yeah. And, and the shared unconscious, the shared experience of trauma I mean, the way you described your group and, and really connecting with the one person who had had a similar life challenge. It, it speaks to connection. It speaks to so much. But along those lines, how has the book been received by the people you interviewed? From those I've heard, like I said, it, it's been mutative. It's been, um, it's offered Jessica Benjamin's recognition, her concept of recognition. And it's, it's, I mean, it, it's just going to sound cheesy when I say it as words, because words can't convey this, right? But it's profoundly altering for me and for them, 
to be seen in this experience because the biggest wound for the survivor sibling is that invisibility, is that unmentalized experience. You know, the family can only hold so much and the the sibling that isn't almost dying is not the one that is often mentalized, carried, seen, and understood. And it's not spoken about, really. Right. I mean, I had this weird experience where I went to, I rarely go to shows, but I went to a Broadway show, Alanis Morissette, Uh her music. And I couldn't believe it, Judith. I almost fell out of my chair because one of the lead characters was a survivor sibling. He like had to go take care of his sister. And I was like, what? Representation. (laughs) I like some part of me has always sort of been flagging, like, where are my siblings of this experience? You know? And and it's true in literature and in in writing too. I, I, I once came across an article by a journalist in Germany. And I wrote to her when I saw it and I said, me too. And we've had correspondence since. So, you know, I, I think that the the people who participated felt recognized and even beyond that folks for whom this wound existed have made their way into my awareness or I've made my way into theirs in really mutative and helpful ways. Yeah. So I'm going to take another sidetrack. You mentioned before about the group and you having to play both roles and sharing. And I'm wondering how that plays out in a clinical setting. Do you have the experience of a patient who had a similar experience, yet you can't necessarily divulge that in the therapy? Yes, I, I definitely have had instances of, of working with folks who've had severe and persistent chronic medical illness. I, I think that mental illness is more often represented in our field or overrepresented in the writing anyway, yes. understandably. Um, so, and, and it's also actually true in traumatic stress studies with the adverse childhood experiences, mental illness of a parent is often uh, cataloged, but medical illness in a sibling, I have yet to see included. I, I'm not a big scholar on that, but I'm always sort of looking, <laughs> looking for where that is, you know? Huh. Um, so it's interesting. I, I think that, you know, the different um, ways of organizing my own experience around this show up when I'm sitting with a patient who has something similar in their family of origin. You know, the, there's a, a part of self that clamors out and wants to resonate and disclose. And then there's a part of self that holds the analytic space for that to unfold if it's helpful for the patient to know. Um, and then there's also just a really interesting opportunity to zoom in and reflect on how a personality adapts to that circumstance. Because when I'm listening to someone else's story, I can hear for my own and vice versa, which is true of the transference, counter transference across the board. But it does make me alert to sibling dynamics in a way, you know, that is really sharp and helpful. Yes. And yeah. and also twins. Right. A whole nother field, right? Right. That has kind of been neglected, but it's this another version. There, there are some folks who touch on it and they're really important, but there are far too few. Right. And that's right. I think, you know, if siblings get addressed, it's 
it's historically been from a one person perspective and more cursory with a few exceptions. There are a few exceptions, um, but, but we really as a field need to understand the, the, you know, the developmental opportunities for co-regulation, mentalization, community, identity formation, that siblings, whether it's a twin or, or a biological relative, or an adopted relative, or a best friend for non-sibling families, you know, um, to understand that, the, the positive things as well as the negative things or the what we might consider challenges like the rivalry or the aggression or the displaced attention. So of parents. Speaking yeah. of which, is this in the realm of the future for Johanna Dobrich? You know, <laughs> I have a lot of different interests, and I, I don't know for sure what direction I will go in next, but I have started, to, I did teach a class on siblings and psychoanalysis, and I am interested in bringing that curriculum into other institutes, because I think that the way we can begin to formulate this is to read, talk, and learn, and experience it you know, together. So, so yes, yes, it's a continuation to be continued. To be continued. I have absolute faith in you. So I will look forward to it. Johanna, it's been such a pleasure. I feel like there's so much in this book that we haven't covered. Is there well, more that you would like to address? I mean, I hope that if this is of interest to our listeners, they'll read the book because there, there is more to, to cover. And um, I, I think what resonates is what's relevant to that reader too. So I would just say anyone that's listening to go to my website and write to me if, if you have questions or reflections and you do read the book and want to share because I would welcome that. You welcome reflections. That's wonderful. Yeah. That would do. You'll, there's a lot of us out there. So be careful what you wish for, as they say. <laughs> so thank you so much. It was really a wonderful experience, not an unexperienced experience speaking with you. And I wish you the best, and I look forward to your future publications. Well, thank you for, for inviting me, and thank you for making it a conversation. That really, I, I will end on that note. I will say that trauma doesn't need a lecture. It needs a conversation in order to, to, to move something that's um, dissociated into the realm of felt and accessible. So, And, and I did say goodbye, but that brings me into ambigu ambiguous loss and meta-dialogue. But we will do that next time. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Johanna. Be well. You as well. Thanks, Judith. Bye-bye.